Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for taking time to join our first institutional client conference call of the quarter. My name is Darren Smith, and I'm head of the West Region for our North America institutional business. I'm joined today by my colleague, John Bilton, our head of global multi-asset strategy for the multi-asset solutions team. Over the next hour, we'll shed some light on what we're seeing in the market and how this is impacting our asset allocation views, as well as our long-term capital market assumptions. To facilitate the discussion, I'm going to pose some questions to John. So with that, John, why don't we go and get started? Certainly what we experienced in March was the fastest sell-off in market history as investors indiscriminately sold assets to raise their liquidity profile. What have your observations been over the past several weeks, and what are you seeing in the marketplace today? Hey, Darren. Thanks. And thank you to everybody who's joined the call today. I realize these are turbulent times, so spending time with Darren and myself is, you know, we're honored to have you all on the call. So, Darren, it's kind of interesting. Um, You know, we're all getting used to working from home, from social distancing. If anybody hears kids yelling or dogs barking in the background, I'm going to apologize in advance. But this isn't the first time we've seen social distancing. In fact, you can go back to 1493. Henry VI introduced a ban on kissing to prevent the plague from spreading. But it is the first time that we've seen one-third of the world's population in lockdown. It's not the first time we've seen stocks falling by a third, but it is certainly the fastest. And I think broadly speaking, it's the first time in modern financial history, and I'm thinking back to the 50s here, that we've seen a government's forced to make a straight choice between the economic outlook and the public health outlook. And quite rightly and understandably, public health has won. So I think the questions that we've been asking ourselves are very much in that context. How do we interpret the world that we're in? Because clearly, some of the assumptions that we would have had have really changed and been challenged. And we are in a very new world with regard to policy responses. So let's look actually first at the the moves that we've seen. So Darren, this, as you rightly pointed out, fastest sell-off in market history that we've seen, and it really has caught markets and investors, I think, by the prize. I think what's interesting, though, is if we take a look at the actual pattern, it's not completely different from history. In fact, I spent a little bit of time overlaying some of the patterns in the S&P 500 with the great financial crisis from 2008-2009, and there are some striking similarities. I mean, first and foremost, what we saw in March was a really significant volatility shock and funding crisis. Not terribly indistinct from what we saw in the early part of the fall in 2008, when Lehman Brothers went bust and we got the run on the US dollar, and the so-called breaking the buck. And what we saw then was the VIX spiked to over 80, and we had very, very sharp selling in the S&P 500, massive run on liquidity. And that's exactly what we saw in March of this year, as we had the Fed having to step in alongside other central banks to provide that dollar funding, dollar liquidity. Now, it's happened very quickly, but we've seen massive and quite coordinated policy support from central banks. And that's begun to ease up both the initial volatility shock and the funding crisis. 
And I think what's rather interesting now, and again, lessons from the global financial crisis of 2008-9, it was the VIX and funding spreads spiked and made their highs in October and November. But it wasn't until March the following year that we saw the low in the S&P 500. And so while we've had a couple of green days on the tapes, and certainly some of the relief that we're seeing from the virus infection rates easing some within Europe have translated to some strong days on equity markets around the globe. We've yet to have earnings season. We've yet to really calibrate where we're going. So what have we learned? We are in recession. Of that, I think there's very little doubt. But the trajectory from here is highly uncertain. And the damage being done, we just don't know at this stage. We do expect earnings season to be an absolute shocker. But what we haven't seen is analysts bring their numbers down fully yet. And so as a result, we're still a little bit cautious in our outlook. But the one thing that we cling to here, and it's something that's really important, and I'm going to come back to this several times as we discuss things this evening, Darren, is that out of recessions, out of bear markets, are built new expansions and new recoveries. And that built new bull markets. But the one that will be ahead of us in the quarters and years to come will have a very distinct tone because of the policy responses being set in motion today, and in particular, the fiscal response, which has been comprehensive and massive, as well as very coordinated on a global basis. John, thanks for that as a backdrop. You know, you and your team just completed your monthly strategy summit. I was hoping that you might share some of the views that were a result of that meeting. Absolutely. And in all my time of attending these meetings, I have to say, I don't think I've sat through one where markets have been as mobile. We were very fortunate to have a front row seat on things as an investing team. But what did we look at? Well, first and foremost, we talked about that point, about us being now in recession and the shock move to recession in many, many regions being so quick. There's a lot of talk at the moment about how deep the drawdown is going to be in economic terms in quarter two. And I think those numbers... You know, while they're academically interesting, are not necessarily something that we should be focusing in on, whether it's 20% of GDP, 50%, as Bullard thinks, in one quarter, and then a rapid bounce back is of less relevance. But what we have to think about is being on a recession footing in 2020. And that means that although we saw assets sold indiscriminately as people reached the dollar funding in March, we're through the phase now, that initial shock, into a point where we're now trying to calibrate forward growth. During that phase, bonds will probably work. There will be days, unlike today and yesterday, where markets are more spooked and where earnings are perhaps more in focus. And on those days, bot days, bonds, even at these really low years, are going to protect you. Indeed, in our quant models, we're beginning to see those swing behind duration a little bit more now, even though we've got these very, very low prevailing yields. We are conscious that... We will see opportunities as well. And it's worth noting that even within credit markets, the Fed have really broken the mold and moved very quickly to start buying investment-grade credit. That opens up opportunities to add risk in certain places. So even though we're on recession footing, we're still looking for places that we can begin to lean into. And that old don't fight the Fed mantra that we got so used to before, I think that's going to serve us well for the moment. One thing we are thinking is that, you know, we haven't seen the downdraft in earnings yet. So as a result, we want to be a little cautious on equities. So we're a little bit underweight in a lot of portfolios, sort of neutral to small underweight, recognizing that while we are going to be seeing some volatility in the near term, 
We need to see markets find a base, and it's moved very, very quickly. But within equities, we're very clear in our preference for the U.S. as a core market because of the dispersion of earnings across different sectors and also because of the exposure to technology, which, let's face it, we are all much bigger users of this month than we were just a month or two back. And so as a result, there are things to be done within portfolios, but we're working on a defensive footing. But again, I'm going to come back to the point we also need to think forward. Fiscal policy plus monetary policy, when the expansion restarts, whenever that may be, will probably mean steeper curves in the intermediate term. That will mean potentially changes in leadership within equity markets, both at a style and a regional level, and also will help us begin to plot through how we want to gain exposure both across the credit and equity markets in the intermediate term. So defensive today, but with a clear eye on the future. Thanks, John. And maybe falling back on fixed income, just for a quick moment, where do bonds go from here? You know, we're at zero today. And then also, if you could touch a bit on view of high-yield default rates. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's funny. I was on a call with some of my team this morning and discussing, you know, how do we describe how we feel about bonds? And I think the, the pithy way of describing it is simply this. Buy them, but don't keep them. What I mean by that is here and now, when you're on a recession footing, having an exposure to duration makes sense. Bonds, over a short couple of weeks in March, did sell off with risk assets. But the negative correlation in stocks and bonds, we would expect to reassert itself over the intermediate term. And if we're in a period where we are trying to calibrate to a lower level of growth, and of course some of the economic data that are coming out are fairly shocking, then bonds will potentially be supported. And then add into that the fact that we're seeing massive central bank demand. And again, I'll say it again, it bears repeating. Don't fight the Fed. They're out there buying bonds. You can expect bond yields to be contained. Now, within the U.S., we don't expect bond yields to go negative, as they have within Europe and in Japan, simply because we don't think that the Fed is likely to take policy rates negative. So we think it's plausible that the U.S. will continue to be a market which has a positive yield, albeit at a relatively low level. But where do they go from here? Well, I think that they will work while we're on recession footing. But over the intermediate term, one of the things that we are aware of is that monetary policy in and of itself didn't stoke reflation. And I'm going to do a shout-out to David Kelly, who wrote a great paper in this year's LTCMA, Long-Term Capital Market Assumptions, talking about the failure of monetary stimulus. And one of the conclusions was that monetary stimulus alone is going to struggle to reflate an economy which has a big savings glut. And the corollary to that is, of course, we needed fiscal stimulus to get things going on the demand side. Now, what is today an emergency response? We think will be a part of the policy framework going forward. And as a result, we can see a path over the next expansion, over the next few years, to steeper yield curves. So today, when it comes to bonds, buying, but when you think about the longer term, you probably don't keep them. So it's a question of if you own bonds, you have an active decision to make at some future point. And let me just round out in terms of high yield. Yields are currently pricing for around about an 85 to 9% default rate. And that seems around about fair, perhaps a little light when we compare it to 2008-9 and also back to the period from 98 to 2001, where annualized default rates were 10 to 11%. So we're not too far away from pricing for a typical recession level of defaults. 
Because I think the thing to also bear in mind is that credit is relatively levered at the moment. But it's levered particularly at those cuspy triple B credits at the bottom end of IG. So I wouldn't just be looking at default rates. I'd also be mindful of the downgrade risk as well. And so what we may be looking at is not just high yield, but also the lower end of IG is something to continue to have a little bit of caution on. By all means, absolutely, we should be leaning in and buying investment grade with good cash flows and where the Fed are buying. But I think that it does argue for a degree of selectivity around credit because ultimately the default rates that are being priced are the type of levels that we have seen in prior recessions. Thank you, John. And you mentioned a bit earlier about market volatility. How are you and the rest of the portfolio management team dealing with that volatility, and how does that translate into asset allocation decisions that you all are making in portfolios? Yeah. So volatility, it's, you know, we spend a lot of time, obviously, as investors thinking about return potential, and a lot of our outlook is talked about, you know, we don't, do we see stocks doing 5%, 10%, 20% over a period of time? And we often hark back to the old thought that stocks should give you around about 8% through the cycle. But the reality is that the volatility component is at least as important because it tells you what the appropriate size of allocation should be. Simply put, the more volatility that you have in the market, the smaller the notional position size that you need in order to achieve a certain level of tracking error risk. And so when we think about our balanced portfolios, actually, it's quite surprising that even when our quantitative signals are very negative in a volatile market, it doesn't suggest massive underweight position sizes because we don't need that huge position size to achieve that same level of directional risk in the market. So for us today, when we think about volatility, we've just gone through a very meaningful volatility shock. Correlation also has spiked and that's and it spiked very aggressively across asset classes. We've seen, if anything, cross-asset correlation spiking more than cross-asset volatility. Now, we do think that that will relax back. It would be unusual for volatility and correlation to remain as high as they are. They do tend to decay relatively rapidly. Again, that example from the global financial crisis where volatility began to decay well before the market hit its lows. We'd expect that to follow a similar pattern. So in terms of a balanced portfolio today, relatively small position sizes. Not only does that keep us nimble, it also reflects that the market is highly volatile because volatility is representing uncertainty. And this environment is nothing if not uncertain. But then as we look across the different perspectives, whether we're thinking total return, whether we're thinking GTAA or other types of fund, the argument is fairly similar. We're looking for volatility to help us design the appropriate position size and then we're looking through that to see where we can get a reasonable degree of diversification, even as correlation has spiked relatively quickly. And the portfolio management team themselves, as I've been in regular conversation with, a lot of the conversations there are really about maintaining the ability to be a little bit nimble. We are getting new information every day. And so quite aside from the volatility, the ability to be able to process and react rapidly to new information that's coming in is something that all of our portfolio managers are buying into and um, acting upon within the end portfolios. John, let's stick with that theme for just one more question here. Our clients are faced with declining funded status, struggling with rebalancing decisions when they really can't afford to take any more downside risk. What do you recommend? Well, 
I think, once again, there's a few things. First and foremost, diversification is a watchword. Let's be clear. Diversification is going to work. Second thing, don't ignore the importance of bonds, but recognize that you're going to need to trade them actively. Just We talked about this to some degree in the long-term capital market assumptions already before bond yields had come down as low as they have now. And that was to say that, look, bonds are not something that are going to give you a great deal of return, but they are going to give you ballast within your portfolio. And that's certainly beginning to prove its worth even now. So there is a space for them there. But also recognize that asset prices have reset. And it's worth noting that with the falls that we saw in equity markets, although we've had something of a bounce over the past few days, the forward-looking returns are actually much healthier. Those markets that folks were pointing to as being expensive and difficult to own are now getting to levels where the valuation is becoming a little bit more compelling, where the forward return capacity has picked up meaningfully. And, you know, the thing that we learned in the last crisis is that it's really important not to pick up what have been cyclical effects and assume that they're secular. This has been very much a cyclical combined demand and supply shock, a demand shock because of everyone being you know, sent home, a supply shock because effectively we've seen the shutdown of a large range of industries. We do think it will rebound, and we think it will be rebound relatively quickly once we're through the worst of this virus crisis. As a result, it's worth looking at the more depressed levels of valuation and recognizing that there is opportunity to lean into otherwise good high-quality assets. And also don't forget, and I'm going to say it for a third time, don't fight the Fed. The Fed are buying decent quality investment grade. You know, some of the selling off that we saw in credit has opened up great opportunities in that part of the market. So there are things that are coming in, whether it be looking longer term and being willing to bear a little bit more near-term market volatility, but recognize that valuations are now more compelling in the equity world, whether it be that you're thinking about credit over the near term because the Fed are backstopping elements of it, whether it be using bonds to give some of that diversification, or indeed thinking more further afield. You know, some of the private asset markets, real estate infrastructure, actually we would expect them to be reasonably resilient given some of the cash balances and given some of the valuations going into this crisis. And certainly the use of alternative assets as a different means of building ballast and stable cash flow into your portfolios is something that is well worth looking at over the intermediate term. So there are still things to do out there. And remember, go back to that phrase from the beginning, out of every recession and out of every bear market is wrought a new expansion and a new bull market. So that brings me right to my next question. What are some of the signals that you'll be looking for that will indicate that we're in a better environment to start adding back to risk assets in portfolios? Yeah. Well, we've had a few of them already, which I think is really encouraging. Supports our core view that this will be over reasonably quickly and that we will get a fairly strong recovery. And I know that's been something which we talked a fair amount about. First and foremost, one of the things that the markets were clamoring for and very quickly got was massive central bank support. There was no sort of thinking about playing around with quarter point cuts and seeing what would happen. All the central banks went all in very, very quickly. This was an unprecedented crisis. It was met with an unprecedented response. The fact that funding spreads and the dollar price have come down some since then suggests that the market now judges that the Fed and their peer central banks around the world 
have done enough to be able to ease some of that funding crisis. So that's checkbox number one that makes us feel more comfortable. Checkbox number two is that fiscal support. When you furlough as many people as we have, we've got one-third of the world's 7.8 billion people basically sat on their hands at home right now. And, you know, that's a massive, massive supply-side shock in the waiting. And we've seen governments around the world step up relatively quickly. It's not perfect by any means, but we've got between 5% in terms of the fiscal thrust as a component of GDP that's been brought to bear by the U.S. government, ranging up to 10% from the Australians. The Germans yesterday announced that they will give unlimited credit to small and medium enterprises, the lifeblood of their own economy. We're seeing massive fiscal support. So that, again, is a second checkbox. The third checkbox, to my mind, is the path of the virus. And here, I think it's not surprising we've seen some reasonable market moves over the past couple of days because we're beginning to see the second derivative of virus cases and virus deaths in places like Italy and Spain, which have been tragically really hard hit by this particular virus, begin to slow down. It concerns me a little that we may still be ahead of that in other major economies, not least the US, but we would be looking for the the beginnings of that inflection point, that flattening of the virus curve that is often talked about, to really come through and evidence to build there. And we're optimistic that that will come sometime late April, early May in the US. And that would be a useful thing. And so there's another checkbox there. But the one thing that keeps us a little cautious at the moment is we simply don't know how much damage has been done to company earnings. Now, it's widely expected that Q1 earnings are going to be terrible, but the guidance is going to be very important. And I think that what that tells us about the risk in terms of defaults in some of the more stressed companies, what it also tells us about activity in the latter half of the year is going to be really important. And although it may well be quite consensus that earnings are going to get hit and analysts are going to have to take their numbers down, I would always argue that there is often sticker shock to some of these numbers. And I think watching how stocks trade through the forthcoming earnings season, particularly in the middle part of April, will be crucial. If stocks are able to shrug off very bad earnings news, it would be suggestive of the market beginning to put in a base. It would be unusual for the market to truck on upwards from where it is now. That kind of market price action would be highly unusual. I personally would expect to see stocks maybe spend a little bit of time retesting their lows and forming a base over the next month or so. But with those other features in play, the support from government, the support from central banks, and a beginning of an easing of the virus strain, that's the point at which I think it would be prudent to begin to look to be adding risk at these much more attractive price points in the equity market. And it sounds like from some of your just prior comments here that you're anticipating this to be more of a fiscally driven recovery. And if that is the case, what type of equity leadership should we be thinking about going forward? Growth, value? Well, I think it's a super important question here because in the same way that the last expansion was characterized by massive monetary policy support, we also learned that once the monetary policy genie was out of the bottle, it didn't really get put back in again. Remember, we had the longest expansion on record globally led by the United States, and during that period, the Europeans, the ECB, the Japanese, none of them were able to raise rates. So that monetary policy hallmark was really something that set our global outlook and set the way in which the asset markets responded. What we saw 
is a very substantially valuation-driven expansion. And yes, while earnings played their part, if you actually look at it in nominal terms, it's really valuations that did the heavy lifting across the board. If we look at the next cycle, we strongly believe that the fiscal stimulus is going to really play a part. We think that there potentially we could see something of a swing back towards labor pricing beginning to become perhaps a little bit more competitive. Potentially, we could see that stimulus coming in much more at the individual level. Something to remember about monetary stimulus in and of itself is alone what it effectively does is it does push some of those economic rewards more to the capital share of the economy because of boosting asset prices. Fiscal stimulus operates in a different direction and potentially can spur demand. So I think what we can see in the intermediate term is a situation where potentially we have perhaps a little bit more of a nominal growth boost and one which allows, I think, a little bit more of a reflationary narrative. Now, let me be clear. We're not going to see that for a while yet. Recessions are, in their nature, disinflationary. And so we've got to contend with that over the next couple of quarters. But in the intermediate term, if we can see a pathway to steeper curves, if we can see a pathway to a more reflationary narrative, that would tend to favor a different mix of stocks, shorter duration stocks, value stocks, regions away from the U.S. that have been really beaten up in relative terms during the last expansion. It's not to say that we should give up on U.S. equity. Ultimately, it is to us a real bulwark of a market and one that will continue to be a major component of any portfolio. But the catch-up play from other regions that have got more value-type characteristics, in a world of steeper curves with a more reflationary narrative, there may be a day in the sun for them as well. And, John, maybe we can transition now over to our long-term capital market assumptions Many of our clients utilize our long-term capital market assumptions, along with many other out there in the industry, to help them make appropriate asset allocation decisions in their portfolios. I know you and the team are in the process right now of looking over those again, and we're looking to re-release those in late April. Just wondering if you might be able to share some of the views that you've come up with thus far. Yeah, so I think, you know, let's expand on that. I mean, first and foremost, it's our very sincere hope that the LTCMAs stand the test of time and that there's thematic work in there which is useful in and of itself. And I mentioned David Kelly's paper in the last one on the failure of monetary stimulus, but I'd also urge any listeners to look to another paper in there as well by one of my colleagues, Fushka Maharaj, which is the paper on rethinking safe havens, which exactly comes to one of the questions, Darren, that you raised, which is what do we do in a world of 0% bond yields? And it's definitely good for thought, I would argue, even now, and especially now, given where yields have gone. But the numbers themselves, clearly, we marked them to market back in September of last year. So September 30, we took our market cut. Now, of course, March 31, markets are a very, very different place. So what we've elected to do is to do a remark and to see what the assumption set would look like for dollars, for euros, and for sterling-based assets if we remark based on the 31st of March numbers. Now, of course, this won't be an official set of numbers. Those we release once a year, but it certainly will give some guidance. And, you know, I think by and large, we would expect that equity returns will go up. The valuation headwinds that were in place because of market price levels are not going to be there anymore. When we look forward, 
as well, the price entry point is going to be more attractive. And so certainly, given that we're looking out, you know, 10 years hence in terms of the valuations, if we're, you know, market that's down 25-odd percent, you'd expect to get a couple of percent per year more of a tailwind. So we would expect to see equity numbers go up. We'd also expect to see credit numbers go up, even allowing for and thinking through the through cycle defaults. But, of course, what's going to be hit quite hard is going to be duration. When you go in with a negative yield, if you buy and hold that bond, guess what? You ain't making anything. In fact, you're probably going to be losing something. So I think the reality is what we will see is a much better prognosis for the riskier assets, a worse prognosis for some of the more riskless assets, and crucially, that stock bond frontier, that efficient frontier that we draw up in the long-term capital market assumptions and something that we use as a, as a real lodestone for thinking about our asset allocation we would expect that also to steepen quite meaningfully and for it to look much, much more like an early cycle type of efficient frontier. And what that's going to tell us is that, you know, pretty much as I've been describing on here, while we're on recession footing today and we're managing our portfolios for a continued period of of some volatility and uncertainty, we're also mindful that those opportunities are opening up, those valuations are coming to levels where it becomes much more attractive to buy. And I'm going to finish as I started. Out of every bear market is born a new bull market. And that's really what we're looking to do with these long-term capital market assumptions is remind ourselves and remind all our readers that those opportunities are out there and that these market moves are going to create an environment in which it will be possible to add more returns into portfolios over the longer term. Great. Well, John, I think we'll go ahead and conclude today's call. We certainly want to thank everyone for joining us today. We hope that it was impactful and a use for you. And we certainly appreciate the continued partnership from each and every one of you. And thank you for participating in today's call. Stay safe. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected.
stored and processed by JP. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by JP Morgan Investment Management Inc. or JP Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc. Both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local JP. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by JP Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave R.L., in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia-Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.